Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I'm Ron Wilson, CEO of InterviewStream and the host of Talent Storm, where we'll chat about everything that meets at the intersection of talent and organizational performance. We're focused on exploring the tips, tricks, and techniques for identifying and fostering talent and creating high-performance teams and organizations. I'm excited today to be speaking with Chad Thompson. Chad and I met a few months back on the golf course. Chad has a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology and has over 15 years of experience consulting to a variety of companies from startups to the Fortune 500 across a variety of industries. His expertise is in defining and measuring people, behavior, and culture in organization. Chad, welcome to the Talent Storm podcast. I'm honored to have you with me today. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you having me. Awesome. Would you mind, uh, when we before we jump in, would you mind giving our listeners a quick overview of your background and how you got into your fascinating line of work? Yeah, so IO psychology is a super interesting topic that I knew absolutely nothing about when I, when I got into, uh, into my undergrad psychology program. Um, you know, as a background, you know, my, my dad was in HR, so I had kind of an understanding of what that was about. Um, I was terrible at like abstract math, but I took a stats class in, in undergrad, um, and that all made sense to me, right? Formulas, there's one right answer. Um, always had a little bit of a kind of entrepreneurial business mindset. Like I was the kid who walked around the neighborhood collecting cans and then took them to the golden goat, right? And charged people to collect the cans and to uh, and collected the money at the end, right? So that was a nice little business when I was a kid. Um, dipping. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I was always kind of the, the, the kid that like just people talked to, right? And probably told me things that they shouldn't have. And so <laughs> IO psychology, as I came to learn, was sort of the, the intersection of all of those things, right? It's the statistics around the measurement of people. It's the kind of personality understanding of people. And then the, the business stuff overlaid on top of that. And so um, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after my undergrad program in psychology, um, I, I ended up finding IO psychology as a potential area to go into, um, selected a program. I, I went to Wright State in Dayton, Ohio, um, and selected that program largely because it was very applied in its focus. I kind of knew I didn't want to teach, uh, at least not initially. Um, and it was uh, a PhD program where you got a master's along the way. And so I figured if I hate doing this, worst case scenario, I'd pull the ripcord after two years and walk out with a master's. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I got into it. Interesting. So what about, uh, you, you've had an interesting career from a consulting standpoint. It looks like, you, you know, you've worked with a, a few different firms. I know Aon Hewitt, you spent some time there. You spent some time, I believe, at Taylor mm-hmm. and uh, then eventually led to, you know, being part of the founding team at Mixed Talent. Can you give us a little background around your consulting experience and what types of engagements and work you did? Yeah, so I actually started consulting um, while I was in grad school, um, which was great um, because I was, you know, sort of able to apply the concepts I was learning in the real world relatively quickly after after learning them, right? Which was great. So um, my focus there was really around sales assessment um, and assessment of different types of salespeople. Um, the the entire team at that firm were also folks from Wright State. And so when I graduated, I thought I probably need to go learn from, from some other people, right? And at the time, um, Aon had a great IO consulting practice, still does, um, started in Atlanta, um, and then eventually moved up here to Michigan, um, was there for about four and a half or five years. And what I really enjoyed about that was just the variety, right? It was I would literally be talking to a pipe fitter in Alabama, trying to develop a pipe fitting test one day, and then sitting down with, 
you know, high level executives talking about some of their challenges the next day. So lots of different kinds of people, lots of different kinds of industries learned from a tremendous number of really, really smart people, um, both on the business side and more on the technical um, IO psychology side, um, but had a little bit of a hankering to do something more entrepreneurial, right? To kind of figure out if I could do this kind of on my own, right? Um, and so joined Taylor Strategy Partners, which at the time was really kind of an old school executive search firm, right? Um, and they brought me in to add some science and some measurement and some rigor to the questions they were essentially getting asked by their clients, which was like, hey, recruiter, it's great you think this person has leadership skills. What data do you have to back that up? And they wanted to have some of that capability in-house. So um, went there, built that consulting practice over the next seven or eight years or so. Um, that company ended up getting acquired. Uh, myself and a number of other folks left after that, uh, after that acquisition and then started Mixed Talent. Uh, kind of in the middle of 2018. So we've been uh, been working at Mix for almost two years, which is crazy. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but, but it certainly has been. So, so what is uh, Mixed Talent focus on? Yeah, so we really have two sides of our business. One is, and the majority of our work is, is in recruiting um, broadly. And that means lots of different things. That means, you know, from kind of a recruitment process, outsourcing standpoint where our clients say, look, our people are really important, but we're not experts in this. We want you to take all of our hiring. Um, sometimes that's, you know, over the course of a period of time. Sometimes that's for a particular project, uh, all the way up to, you know, recruiting C-level executives. Most of that work, Ron, is in pharma and biotech, um, both on kind of the client and the service side of that business. Um, and then we do a ton of work on the consulting side of our house, which is the practice I lead um, in support of that recruiting work, right? Similar to kind of what I described we were doing at, at TSP. Um, but then also, um, we have a number of clients outside of pharma and biotech on the consulting side where, you know, I kind of describe it as helping our clients um, make better decisions using data, right? Um, it, it doesn't have to be a crapshoot in terms of who you hire, who you promote, who's a hypo, who's in the succession plan. Um, and so we do most of our work around helping uh, companies sort of define what they're looking for in a particular role and then measuring um, folks against whatever those criteria are. Got it. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier for the audience, you know, you and I met, met on the golf course and in the casual conversation of, Hey, what do you do? You know, for a living. And, and I was just thoroughly fascinated by the fact that, you know, you have a, a PhD in industrial and organizational behavior and you're, re, you know, working with HR teams and basically an HR type firm. Yep. And I just really never, thought of that or really come across to anybody like you. And so, you know, it's just, I've been fascinated ever since I've, I've met you about, you know, what you do and, and how you actually leverage data, you know, in, in your practice. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, can you share with us how you actually go about doing what you do from a, you know, a data driven perspective? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing um, and, and where we always start is with a relatively simple question that I think generally gets overlooked, which is what are we trying to measure here? Right. Mm. Um, and we tend to take a very specific kind of bespoke approach to that question, um, in part because we don't really have, you know, a mixed way of uh, assessing something. We don't have a mixed personality test. Right. Um, what we're generally doing is. Um, sort of combining bits and pieces of other commercially available assessments um, and then and then actually 
um, aligning that to what the client is looking for. So if you start with the question of what are we trying to measure, that might be, you know, in your role as a CEO, Ron, it's very different kind of building and growing a company than it is running a machine that's already working really well, right? In the world of, of pharma or biotech sales, launching a product in oncology is very different than selling a flu medication in a heavily genericized market as an example. And so we really try to understand the business dynamics behind what uh, behaviors are likely to drive success with whatever kind of role we're working for, get really granular and really specific about that, and then start to build assessments around whatever those capabilities are versus saying, hey, here's our test. How many of them would you like to order? I hope it measures something you care about. Right. Do you um, do you do anything from a, like a long tail perspective as far as, you know, looking at the effectiveness of the assessments on the, you know, the front end of the hiring process, yeah. then related to the performance and, and potentially tenure of, of an individual? Yeah. And, and you mentioned performance and tenure, right? And those and those might be two different things, potentially. <laughs> right. Oh, and towards what yeah. makes those things. And so. Um, so absolutely, you know, that's sort of the heart of the research aspect of, of an IO psychology degree is doing that type of essentially quasi-experimental research, right? Um, lots of different ways to go about doing that. It can be challenging for some reasons, um, largely because oftentimes the criteria you're trying to predict can be pretty messy, right? Anybody who's tried to build a talent analytics practice or done anything really as it relates to HR data knows how challenging that can be. Um, but in some of the spaces that we operate in, sales in particular, you, know, you can look at a number of different kinds of objective sales metrics, you know, quota attainment, market share growth, you know, number of uh, prescriptions written if we stay in the pharma space. Um, you might care more about new prescriptions versus refills, right? There's lots of different ways to slice that. Um, and then you can line that up with whatever you used on the front end to, uh, to assess somebody, right? That could be a, that could be a test. Um, that could be, you know, a, a cognitive ability measure of some kind. Um, it could be things in that people's background, right? We've had projects where we've gotten uh, sales data for an entire sales force and then said, send us the resumes for all those people and gone through and said, does it matter if they have previous experience in this particular area? Does it matter if they've worked in a startup before? Does it matter if they have a master's degree or not? Does it matter what they... Um, what they majored in in college, right? You can get as granular there as you want to. Um, and and the, the skill around marrying those skill sets, um, doing the analysis, and I think more importantly, driving the so what out of that, right, is, is actually the, the key skill. Because um, you can throw all sorts of data into a regression equation and not be able to make sense of what comes out of it um, or draw incorrect conclusions because you don't understand the nature of those types of analyses. Now, I think, you know, on the surface, it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of com complexity around what, what you do, but intuitively, I, I'm, I'm believing it's really not as complex as it, it may sound. And I'm wondering, you know, like, from a, from a client perspective, if, if I'm an organization who wants to get more data-driven around assessing my talent, I mean, how, how does one go about, like, approaching that? Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a good question because that's oftentimes the barrier to doing this kind of work I find, right? Is people think it's and, and it is complex, but the complexity kind of scares people off from kind of going down this path, right? They know their data is messy, 
They know people are messy, <laughs> right? In general, right. Um, and so, and so, sometimes that's an easy reason to not be more data driven. And you go, well, I don't know. We'll just go with somebody's gut, right? Um, but I think for companies that want to be more data driven, getting really clear around the business outcomes you're trying to drive is is really the first step, right? So, as a if you think about executives, you know, are we trying to make this executive team function better together? That's a different problem than. Uh, or that's a different maybe set of behaviors than do we want somebody who you know just really drives productivity within their vertical, right? Um, and so getting crystal clear about what impact are we trying to have on the business, I think is step one. Um, and oftentimes, again, that gets missed, right? We build, uh, companies build a competency model or a mission or value or vision um, that doesn't necessarily connect to actual business outcomes, right? And that's easy. It's an easy thing for business people to go, well, that's just some HR initiative that I don't really need to participate in, right? The key, I think, is to try to tie those two things together, your business strategy and your people strategy, and then get really clear around, okay, if this is the people strategy that ties to our business strategy, these are the behaviors we're trying to generate in our people, and then here's how we assess for those or promote people who are already demonstrated them or whatever the use case might be. That's awesome. So um, I'd like to, you know, flip, uh, switch up a little bit here. You know, we, we talked about the assessments and I know you've also uh, got a lot of passion around culture and, you know, individual and organizational performance. And uh, I'd like to lean into that a little bit and talk about sure. you know, any best practices that you've got around creating dynamic and thriving cultures. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're we're all in the people business, right? I mean, right. If, if we're if we have a company which, by definition, is a collection of people, then then we're in the people, right? And so, I think you know, being really crystal clear about um, what aspects of your culture you both want to retain um, and aspects of your culture that you may need to flex and grow as your business evolves right, is really important. And so um, we often work with companies in pharma and biotech, as an example, you know, there are a couple really major inflection points along those companies' growth paths, right? When you're basically just a scientific company, that's a different kind of culture than even a scientific company that is moving um, things from the lab into the clinic, right? Hiring different kinds of folks, you have different types of objectives. And then once you get a product that's close to commercialization, you know, that's a very different kind of culture as well. And so we're often having conversations with our clients around, look, what, what has made you unique and special and why you've been successful to date? Let's try to retain whatever that is. Um, but let's also acknowledge that as this company grows and progresses, the culture has to flex, right? Um, and that's where I do get a little worried around from an assessment standpoint, always looking for the same cookie cutter sort of person. Um, I think as much attention needs to be paid to what diverse set of perspectives, what diverse set of knowledge, what new skill sets do we need to go out and find, and how do we kind of assimilate those folks into the culture that we've already created, or I guess maybe accommodate folks with a different perspective is, is probably a better term there. Got it. So um, obviously, you know, 2020 has been a, uh, a, a very uh, abnormal year for, yes. for many, for, for most of us. Yes. And, um, you know, in, and being in the people business, it, it certainly, you know, people are going through uh, a lot, you know, with COVID, with social injustice, uh, we've got a crazy election year going on. You know, what sort of changes have you seen in your practice and your consulting business in 2020 versus, you know, what you've seen previously? 
Yeah, I, I think in general, everything that's happened in 2020 has largely accelerated things that were already happening, right? So um, a move to more flexible work schedules, as an example, right? I think things were heading in that direction. And that, that you know, 2020 just poured gas on that fire for, for obvious reasons. Um, I think the importance of culture was was increasing and now even more so because you have to figure out how to rally these people around a collective mission, how to establish norms and and, uh, and sort of shared ways of thinking, um, which is how I define culture, um, remotely, right? Which is very different than being able to do that in an office. And so, you know, I think use of technology like Zoom, certainly see that on the talent acquisition side of the business, right? Um, has, has become much, much more important. And so I think just in general, it's, it's accelerated things that were already happening and probably in some ways caused everybody, not just HR folks, business leaders as well, to think differently about, you know, how do we keep people engaged and acknowledge also the very like real concerns that people have, <laughs> right, going on in the world. And, and it's impossible for that kind of stuff, I think, to not spill into at the very least, how people think about their work, if not kind of what who they actually are at work and the concerns they have. And so it's been a, it's been a difficult balancing act for, you know, for a lot of folks, but I think it is um, hopefully continued to shine a light on the importance of recognizing that the people you employ are like actual human beings and not just cogs in a machine. Um, right. And I think there's been more of a, a focus on that um, as a result of some of the things that have been going on in 2020. Without a doubt. So, you, you know, you mentioned uh, technology, obviously uh, video, uh, yep. we're biased. Uh, we think video is uh, very, very important and, you know, very consciously biased around that. Yes. Um, you know, my experience has been, you know, historically, again, conscious bias here, macro level general statement, you know, HR leaders, HR organizations have generally been a laggard from a technology adoption perspective and, yep. you know, from an innovation perspective. I mean, what do you see changing from that landscape, you know, from, from the folks that you work with? Yeah. I mean, you sort of don't have a choice anymore. Right. <laughs> so I think, I think that's, what's changed is, you know, there's, uh, you know, getting everybody in a room um, and running somebody through a kind of car wash of seven different interviews in the course of the day um, live just isn't an option. And so it's forced, um, it's forced some adoption of technology that maybe, you know, maybe things hadn't um, hadn't prior. And I'm with you, Ron. I've always kind of waited for our clients to say, "Hey, we have to have video interviewing," and it, it just kind of never happened, right? Right. Um, yep. Now, obviously, they don't have much of a choice. And so, you know, what we've had to think about, both on the recruiting side of our business and on the consulting side, is how do we how do we do that, um, but make sure that we're still doing all of the things that we think lead to a really positive candidate experience. I think that was one of the barriers, you know, folks were telling themselves, well, it's not going to feel authentic. I'm not going to get a good read on who this person is. I'm not going to be able to measure the things I care about. Um, and I think what folks have realized is, you know, is there a place for a lot of things being in person? Of course, can video be a really, really good supplement to that, or maybe even take over for that in some cases, tremendous cost savings. There's a million reasons you would do video, obviously. Um, I think folks have kind of realized like, yeah, it can be okay, right? Um, and there's ways to do that effectively. There's ways to do it super poorly, by the way, as well. Um, but there's but there's ways to do it effectively. Yeah. So you know, if you had a crystal ball and you know you're looking into 2021, I mean, what do you, how do you think you know the world's going to change from a, an HR perspective as as we uh, move forward? 
Yeah, I, I think the, you know, I think the expectation that employees have of their companies, not just of HR, but this is where most of this right. stuff lands, um, right. are going to be higher in terms of the type of culture they create, in terms of, you know, respect for different opinions, respect for um, you know, different ways of thinking, um, respect for the lives that people live, right? Which is ultimately what flex work arrangements sort of require. And I know there's obviously a million people, uh, millions of, of jobs that are not necessarily um, able to be done remotely, right? Um, but for those that can, you know, I think the the expectation of that type of accommodation um, is going to be is going to be pretty high. In part because, you know, I don't think I've talked to a single CEO, a single business leader over the course of 2020 who said, man, our, pro- our productivity is getting crushed, right? People don't really have that concern. Um, I think people rightfully have a concern about, you know, the long-term impact to their organizational cultures. That makes sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, and how long can you kind of hold people together when you can't get them all in a room because we are sort of social animals by nature in that way. Um, but I think folks are going to look at productivity in 2020 and go, A, we did a lot more with less and we didn't have to drive however long you have to drive and sit in the cube forever, however long you have to sit in the cube. And we were okay. Um, and so, you know, I think it'll be a tough ask for, for companies to, to kind of go back a hundred percent to exactly how things were before. Um, you know, I don't know what that means in terms of office space design. We've been thinking about that as we've been trying to kind of open our offices back up. Right. Um, so, you know, it's more kind of communal meeting spaces instead of individual desks. I have no idea, but, um, you know, I think the impact of this will be, will be pretty long-term. It'll be a long time, Ron, I think before I get on a plane to fly to California for one 45 minute meeting, which I was doing relatively frequently before. Um, so I think business travel will be an interest, another area to see, uh, kind of how that shakes out. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, you know, on, on a variety of fronts there, uh, you know, first off, I, I, I've been telling people short commercial real estate because boy, there's going to be a lot of uh, office space available. Cause I think we've, we've turned the corner from the, you know, work from home movement and, you know, uh, a buddy of mine uh, on a, a recent podcast, you know, said to me, I think we're going to move away from work from home days and we'll move to work in office days. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, oh, I'm working uh, one day in the office this week, you know. Kind of. I think the Google CEO said something very similar to that just this week, actually. Yeah. Uh, w- which makes sense because again, you know, I, I too, you know, productivity has not been impacted. I think people are um, experiencing more of their lives. They've gotten time back to go do more important things that, you know, that they want, uh, want to do. And, you know, I think another remarkable thing that we're going to look back on in 2020 is really the resiliency uh, that, that we've shown as individuals, because the statement that, you know, I can make is our productivity hasn't been impacted, but the lives around my team have been significantly impacted. Absolutely. And yet they've risen to the occasion and continue to rise to the occasion and deliver. And, uh, and I think that's just, you know, truly remarkable, um, you know, uh, for, for what people are doing, given, given the, uh, the circumstances that we're all dealing with today. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, along with that, Ron, is sort of a bifurcation around how good was your culture to begin with, right? Right. And so companies that have paid a lot of attention to culture, that have focused on that, have been intentional and cognizant about the kind of positive culture they try to create um, are much more resilient in times like this. Companies that sort of didn't care or didn't think it was important, you know, that's where I think you're going to start to see some fraying. Um, and and the, the 
associated productivity and turnover rates and all of those things, you know, will probably start to diverge maybe a little bit faster than they would have otherwise. Awesome. So I, I know we focus predominantly more from an organizational side, you know, of the conversation today. Um, I'd like to just quickly flip it over because I know you spend a lot of time doing individual coaching, you know, and, and, you know, do you have any advice for, for individuals today that are, you know, trying to drive their own personal performance or maybe driving the performance of their organization? Yeah. I mean, I think from, you know, from an individual perspective, the, the thing that I always listen for when I'm interviewing somebody, the thing, the thing I'm always looking for, um, if I'm looking at assessment data and more specifically in my line of work with exec, with executives typically is trying to marry those two things together. Right. Um, is, is really self-awareness. Right. Um, I think that's almost always the most important thing, um, from a leadership perspective. And so, you know, do you understand and have your arms around your own emotions about everything? Number one. Um, secondly, do you have your arms around how your own emotions, regardless, however you might be feeling are impacting those around you, right? Is sort of the, the second stage there. Um, and then thirdly, do you have your, your arms around how the way you're impacting others impact their productivity, right? Or their, or their perceptions of culture and those sort of things. And I think the, the best leaders I speak with um, in interview and in coach or whatever the context might be, understand all three levels of that, right? Um, the ones who are struggling the most generally aren't very self-aware, right? So they're not even to that first stage where they've got their arms around how they're feeling. Um, and then certainly, you know, we, we try to move people through the, the stage to the point where they can, they can understand not only how are they impacting them around them, but what are the implications of that to whatever you need those folks to do for your business to, to do what it needs to do. I love that. I could, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, 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 the journey of, of high performance, I think starts with really good self-awareness of where you're at and you know what you need to do to get to the next level. Yeah. And, and self-awareness, I should say too, Ron, is not just things that, you know, I think oftentimes that comes across as like, well, what are my shortcomings? And I am not aware of those. That's part of it, obviously. Um, right. But I think that also includes, what do I do that leads me to be successful, right? You know, from a, from a, you know, take it to sales reps as an example, where we do a lot of work. I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand, oh, I did this. And so the result was that, right? That connection is not obvious to them. Um, and then it's really hard then from a, from a, a job movement standpoint right? to, to understand, can I be successful in a different kind of environment? Right. And so as people are making job moves and obviously we're in the business of, of recruiting in a lot of places. And so that's generally what people are doing. Um, right. The thing I'm always listening to is, do you understand why you were successful in your most recent role? And have you thought critically about the extent to which that translates to wherever it is you think you're going? Right. If you sort right. of think about this from a job from a job movement context. And so um, I think understanding what you're good at and how that translates to other environments is just as important as understanding Hey, these are some things I'm working on, right? And, and need to try to get better at. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, um, I know we're kind of button up on time here and I just wanted to see, is there anything else you'd like to cover today? No, I mean, I'd be curious to hear, you know, sort of what you guys have seen in your business in terms of adoption of technology. Have you, you know, have you seen kind of that forcing mechanism come into play as, as much as you would have anticipated, more than you would have anticipated? What is kind of what does that look like from your perspective as a provider in those kinds of services? Yeah, absolutely. We've we've seen a a four to five X increase of usage of our technology since March. Yeah. 
And so, um, you know, our, our, our platform has just been getting hammered, you know, from, uh, from a usage and adoption perspective. We've seen a lot more recruiters, you know, in the system yeah. using the technology. Uh, you know, the, right after we shut our office down on, on March 12th, the, the next week we opened up our platform for free. So we had hundreds of, of organizations take advantage of that because, you know, we just wanted to keep the hiring process moving um, as we knew it would, you know, things could easily come to a screeching halt, especially for organizations who haven't embraced technology. Um, we're certainly seeing a greater adoption of it. Um, obviously, video as, you know, we've been around for a while and have been growing, you know, steadily, but um, video, the adoption of video has been spotty. And uh, I think the Zoom effect, if you will, has has taken hold and, yeah. and people now realize, you know, it's not a scary thing to be on video. Um, you can actually get to know people maybe even more, just, you know, seeing them in their environment. Uh, people are often more comfortable sitting in their own home, chatting, you know, talking to folks. And so, you know, we're, we're excited about the, the adoption of technology and, and uh, what the future holds. And, you know, our focus uh, is, is really around reducing bias, you know, through the process, driving more objectivity through, through the process. But, but uh, even um, as important, also driving more effective outcomes. And, and we view that as, as uh, reducing, you know, turnover, yeah. um, which, uh, which is, you know, I, I believe as a CEO, the, the biggest challenge I have in an organization is when we have first year avoidable and dysfunctional turnover, you know, and, and uh, I believe that all starts in the hiring process. Totally. And, yeah. um, and, you know, and as you've talked about, you know, you, it, it's, it's about assessing, you know, the candidates and beginning with the end in mind, I'll use Covey to, to talk about, you know, your point around, you know, making sure you understand what you're measuring and why you're measuring it yeah. and, you know, what the outcomes are that you're trying to drive. So, you know, I'm really excited because I think technology um, has, is an enabler to help facilitate that process, but we're still focused on humans being uh, uh, part of human resources and not letting technology, you know, make decisions on, on behalf of people. I think that's exactly right. To, to me, technology should enable what you're trying to get accomplished, not dictate what you're trying to get accomplished, right? Um, and oftentimes I think that's, that's a mistake that gets made. Um, and so I'm, I'm right on board with you as far as that goes. Well, awesome. Well, hey, that was an awesome conversation. I'd like to thank you again for your time and insights today. You know, how can uh, listeners best connect with you? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on the mix-talent.com uh, is our website. Um, those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, we'll put that uh, info in the show notes as well. All right, everybody. Well, that's a wrap for our uh, conversation with Chad Thompson. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you prefer to get your stream. We'd also really appreciate it if you provide us with a rating and review. If you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to reach out to us at talentstorm at interviewstream.com. Chad, thanks again for talking with us today. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I enjoyed it. We'll hit them straight next time. Right on. It's all good. Cheers. Cheers.